0: Everyone, I hope you're really, really well. I wanted to jump in here to just welcome you to this episode. We've had a collision of worlds, a joining of forces, a banding of brothers, if you will. Sash from Principal Design and me, I'm Sean from Open Pantry Consulting. We are pleased to announce this exciting venture, Principal Hospitality. Now, really, it's a holistic view and look the food and beverage industry in this country, designed with hospitality professionals in mind. The website's coming soon. Obviously, you're listening to the podcast right now, but what we're trying to do here, our goal is to provide hospitality professionals with a platform to connect with people from all aspects of the food and beverage industry, from business owners to front of house and service staff, chefs to baristas and SOMs. We want to make sure that we are supporting you through this recovery in the hospitality area. So hope you're really enjoying the podcast. If you are, please make sure that you're sharing it with your friends in the industry and you're letting them listen to this because we are really putting so much time and energy and passion into this project and we want to make sure it's delivering for you. Let's get into this episode. I hope you really, really enjoy it. Welcome to another podcast. It is so fantastic to have you listening along. So thanks for tuning in, especially as we get into 2021. Today, I'm really, really honored to talk to the founder of fonda mexican one of the most amazing brands let alone the best mexican brand in this country fonda has got eight venues across this nation uh seven of them in melbourne and one in sydney um i have admired this brand for a long time because i used to work for one of the one of the competitors so i know how much a um, amazing brand it actually is so it's fantastic to talk with the founder tim mcdonald how are you Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me on board. Absolutely. My pleasure. Now, when we talked um, a bit before Christmas, um, it was just really great to get your insights into, you know, how the industry is going and the challenges that you've had, um, you know, with the brand, with the eight venues um, sort of COVID time. So today I'd really love to talk about that. But uh, how did? let's talk about how you actually started the brand, because when I sort of first uh, knew of it in my early days of, you know, coming to Melbourne and, and seeing it, um, it was just such an exciting brand to to be out the front of the venue and actually look at it and see the atmosphere and see the environment. So, how did you actually start the brand? How did you get it off the ground? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, some of it was by accident, some of it was was deliberate. But thank you for your, your kind comments about your uh, your perspective and experiences with the brand. I initially had the the, the idea or the the catalyst for the vision came from a few experiences I have over in the States in 2007. Mm-hmm. And in 2007, that was a time where the only Mexican in Melbourne was really Montezuma's and Taco Bills. Yes. So seeing the, the really fresh, contemporary, um, trendy sort of interpretation of Mexican cuisine in America was mm-hmm. pretty inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed like an obvious, I mean, Aussies love Mexican and Mexican has done poorly um, in Australia. Yes. So myself and I'm sure thousands of other Australians that were in, in America at that time saw the same opportunity that, that I did, mm-hmm. which was just a, a, a fresher, healthier, more contemporary um, version of a Mexican restaurant um, for the Australian market. Mm-hmm. So that was in 2007. And I, that, the, the context of that, and I guess in the years leading up to that, I just worked part time in hospitality and I had some sort of basic experience as a, as a waiter and bar person and I did notice a lot of my experiences were pretty negative from a cultural point of view. I had a lot of managers that weren't overly great at managing and and, and pretty mean to a lot of myself and a lot of my colleagues at the time. So I sort of, without really realising it at the time, I developed a bit of a, a passion for starting a business one day but really making sure that the culture was strong and people felt valued and respected and and um, they were spoken to with respect and whatnot. Um, and then I... I also just had a general um, desire and interest in entrepreneurship and starting starting my own business. So it was a combination of some poor hospitality experiences, uh, a, a desire to start my own business and then obviously seeing the Mexican in America mm-hmm. um, with a sort of the two or three inspirations to how it came about. Mm-hmm. And then the more tangible, practical side of, of launching it was just getting together with my business partner, Dave Yule, um, and that the success of that partnership has been really important to date. He's very different to who I am. Um, uh, we got together and just started working on um, menu, uh, brand, and so on and so forth. But because at the time where we really started working on it, I was a lawyer and he was a fireman. So neither of us were really hospitality experts. Yeah. And the reason that I say that is that it, it meant that we had to look at everything with just sort of common sense And we were generally looking at everything from a very neutral, original point of view. We didn't have a painted picture or a preconception of how anything um, needs to be or should be. So we we just looked at every aspect of putting the business together through a a very naive and and, um, untainted uh, lens, Mm -hmm. which meant that the finished product and what the Fonda model is whilst it's Mexican, it was also, I think, part of its success, and I think this bit happened accidentally, that it was a, a bit of a different restaurant model. It didn't really fit mm. into fast food or fine dining because we just looked at every aspect of it um, with, with common sense and got a lot of other people's feedback and ideas on board and, and travelled and, and whatnot. It ended up being, yeah, this sort of loosely termed sort of fresh casual, but it was just mm. a different um, restaurant model. And I think that was part of the success um, early on.
0: Yeah was it I'd uh, love to talk you know how you actually built out the initial menu and the initial branding because Mexican at that time like obviously mexican is a is a pretty competitive market as we you know as we talk about it uh, 14 years later after you started the first store but at that period of time like obviously it was massive in America but it was all uh, from what i I know of it him it was also quite fragmented so there's quite there's a lot of different styles of mexican or or variations of what mexican is especially in the us like what kind of how did you actually develop that menu to fit the australian market and and hope that it was actually going to hit the right spot yeah it it sounds a bit
1: sort of unsexy and commercial and not romantic but we did a lot of um sort of market research and and questionnaires of a lot of people yeah, um, we got about 500 results in the end to really um, sort of seek clarity and direction on what people wanted, mm-hmm. and that this keyword of fresh keep coming up. Yeah, um, people were sick of either the fast food or the stodgy old Mexican, so really keeping the menu and the product fresh became the, the pretty early on focus. Mm-hmm. And then the next question was, how do we how do we do that? And we. At some point, we knew that we didn't want to be a really overly authentic or traditional Mexican concept or Mexican menu. Yep. So we we steered away from having anything Tex-Mex on the initial menu. So there wasn't. We didn't have nachos, mm. sour cream, Corona. Mm-hmm. There were no. There was no mariachi music playing. There was no sombreros. And not that there's anything wrong with any of that, mm-hmm. but we really wanted to send a message to our initial sort of customers that we were a a really fresh contemporary um, take on, on Mexican. Yes. And the key thing that we did, I think, to achieve that was to actually work with our, our founding chef, Ravi Presser, mm-hmm. um, who worked at Cumulus and the Brasserie, so worked with some sort of top-end chefs. Mm-hmm. He had no experience with Mexican whatsoever leading up to the, um, uh, you know, the development of our menu. Mm-hmm. He did have some um, consultants on board that helped him out with some of the more traditional spices and marinades and salsas. But because he had very little experience with Mexican, a little bit like Dave and I with with restaurants, he wasn't Mm -hmm. confined to recipes that he'd been cooking and teaching for years and years and years. Yes. Whereas before working with Ravi, we trialled a few consultant chefs to to found the menu that were Mexican chefs. And despite our brief to be very fresh and not be authentic necessarily, Mm. everything that was served up, as uh, suggested, menu items was pretty authentic traditional Mexican. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the key decision to nail that that fresh aspect was to get a chef that that had no experience in Mexican, mm. but was just a great a, a great chef and 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 willing to learn to achieve that kind of fresh and not necessarily authentic take on on the menu. Yeah
0: what about things like your layout and your actual brand feel because when you were uh, when you're talking about you know 2007 that's the start of the evolution of what you know you talked about before being you know premium fast casual or um, fresh casual restaurants uh which is quite you know new to the very new to the market it was this in between of of you know celebrationary type restaurants and then fast food and this this element of sort of order at the counter but then uh, but then have a really great experience once you you know sit on a sit on a chair. Like, how did you decide that you wanted to do that particular model, and how did it look yeah. and feel inside the restaurants? Like, were were customers confused? You know, when they started to experience. Yeah, it some some were.
1: Mm. We, we didn't actually set out to develop a fresh casual model because, as you mm. said, at 2007, it didn't really exist. There was yes. fast food, and then there was fine dining. So there wasn't mm. a conscious decision to to set out that fresh casual model. At the core of it, what we wanted to do was make premium dining accessible. We mm. wanted to have quality quality food and quality cocktails that you didn't have to book a table for and spend a hundred bucks a head. Mm. And I think with that key underlying purpose of making premium dining accessible, yes. we just looked at every decision in isolation. Is it table service or is it counter service? And we went for mm. counter service. Mm. Um, uh, and even because some things happened by accident because our first site was so small. Everything had to be really compact, like the crockery, the tables. Everything was really compact, and the chairs and tables were close together. But that then created a great atmosphere. Yes. So we we just looked at each. Um, we knew the price point we wanted. Um, product wise, Mexican is it's, it's Mexican street food. It's tacos, burritos, and quesadillas. So that was always going to be pretty. Um, hassle-free and fuss there's nothing um, overly luxurious or premium about that which forced a, a really affordable price point yes so that was the that was the main thing we wanted to to do was to create premium dining and an accessible premium dining experience mm-hmm. um, and then as we as I said we just looked at every decision with common sense and we ended up with Fonda what it is today and it really does sort of fit into that fresh casual model as you said but that was more by accident than, um, than anything else. Mm-hmm. So floor plan. And as I said, the first site was very small. So floor plan, we were pretty confined with, um, with, uh, certain things with the floor plan, but that created a great atmosphere. Yes. Um, and, and the nature of Mexican street food, which being, um, tortillas mainly so tacos, quesadillas or burritos meant that the food was pretty casual. And we also wanted to keep the price point casual. So, um, you know, you can go in there and have dinner and and an alcoholic drink for for less than $25. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that created, what that did was created a real buzz and an energy because we were busy seven nights a week, because it was accessible, it was quick, it was cheap. That meant that at the core of the experience, I think, was this buzz that you get from a busy restaurant where people are packed in and enjoying themselves more so than the actual Mexican Mexican meal itself. So the buzz it eventually became a really core aspect of what we offer and what we um, what we sell essentially. So it's, and that's the challenge for us is to is to keep that up moving yeah. forward.
0: As, uh, talking about your team for a second, has it, has there been an evolution in the kind of person that you would have recruited, the kind of um, the kind of I, sp- I suppose staff identity that you would have recruited in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, when you're starting the brand, and what you're now recruiting in twenty twenty one, or are they are they sort of the same sort of person and idea? Uh,
1: yeah. I think the leaders and the managers are the same sort of person, but the difference between 2009 and 2021, mm. we're now um, eight, eight restaurants and we've got some more sort of systems and processes behind the scene. Um, there's a bit of a rhythm and a flow to what we do. We're not, we're not necessarily a new brand. Mm. So I think we've, we probably have shifted to a, a younger demographic of of who we employ and because we've got i think better structure because of the structure involved in the business as opposed to early on when we were just we didn't have much structure to anything that we did and we are relying on individual discretion which meant we had to hire older people that had that you know hospitality experience and life experience and maturity to to keep the thing running successfully
0: mm-hmm. What about the time of COVID? So obviously you've got you've got seven of your eight restaurants in Victoria. Victoria's been the hardest hit, you know, city of of, of Australia. Um, how did you actually monitor yourself through that through that crisis and actually develop your team during that time? Given you've got you know you've got eight venues, you've got, obviously got you know a lot of money going through these restaurants, and then and then you've got you know shutdowns happening and a, and a complete change to service model like what was sort of the first thing running through your head as the founder of this business with Dave? And then and then what did, what did you sort of start to do to make sure the business was sustainable moving forward?
1: Um, well, it might sound a bit negative and a bit um, morbid, but but generally the first thing that ran through my head when it all hit was this could be the end of us because we were essentially told to shut down with 24 hours notice. This was before any job keeper, or any rent relief was... Um, Uh, Announced, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we probably had four or five weeks worth of money in the bank as far as our fixed costs, and we were told to shut our doors. Yeah. So the first thing over that first couple of days was how we're going to get through this. This is, you know, something drastic is going to have to happen. Unfortunately, the the government did a really good job with the job keeper and the rent relief stuff to keep us Mm -hmm. buoyant. But once we we got a hold of that we realized financially that things were going to be okay it really came down to a communication and welfare piece we like a lot of hospitality businesses we had a lot of internationals working for us yes that didn't have any didn't get any government support Mm. so it was really it was a difficult thing to manage where you're sending out messages to your we've got roughly 300 staff that work for Fonda roughly half of them are JobKeeper eligible and half weren't. So how do you send out messages to the teams when you've got, you know, half the people? And some of those people couldn't go home at all. Their borders were locked, even to them as as nationals. So Brazil, for example, Brazilians couldn't get back into Brazil. Wow. But they were also unsupported in Australia. So that was really difficult, but there was um, some things that we did internally to support those people, and most of them did get through and stick around. And fortunately, it's been a really busy summer for us. And so they've, they've had plenty of hours um, since we reopened back in um, October. Mm-hmm. But it ideally, we wanted to, like a lot of people, we had this sort of four to five months of closure. We wanted to get training going and relook at projects and systems. But because we were all sort of working from home, um, um, it was pretty tough to to get anything substantial done. It was more about just survive and stay afloat. We stayed open for takeaway, but um, as everyone knows, unfortunately, the uh, the commissions that the, most of the delivery platforms charge, mm. it was pretty hard to to get ahead with the takeaway, but I think it did at least keep the lights on and, and keep the, the grills on, so to speak, and keep everyone in touch with our operations and menus. So reopening for the dining guests in October wasn't too much of an effort. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was a i am not going to I think we did it pretty well, but I don't think anyone did it well well because we've we no one had done it before. Everyone was just yeah, exactly. um winging it. There was no playbook on how to how to manage this. But yeah. the biggest thing was that really the, the the thing that was that took the brunt of COVID was the individuals themselves, all of us as employees of the business that went on to JobKeeper, people that didn't go on to JobKeeper at all, and even our landlords that that took a hit with with rent that was waived. Sure. And um and the government that's you know given out a whole lot of grants. So the, the businesses were the business itself was preserved pretty well, like most were, but the individuals really took a hit, but but um you know we all got through it.
0: Mm. What have you what have you learnt about your team that you didn't know during this time?
1: Um yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that we have a I always thought we had a strong culture, I think we've got a stronger culture. Than, um, than we did. It was mm. pretty incredible to see how willing people were to take pay cuts and keep working on things and, and stick around through it. Yes, I was incredibly grateful for that, and that was really surprising. Mm. And I think, like a lot of people, some of the people, obviously not the operational people, but some of the people that work in the office and whatnot, were able to get a lot of work done um, remotely or from home. Yes, um, and that we've been more successful in staying productive working remotely than I, than, I thought, um, than I thought we would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think that people and people are pretty empathetic. When, when shit hits the fan, so to speak, people got that it wasn't our fault, it wasn't anyone's fault, and they were really understanding and supportive of decisions that we made. So I think in times of crisis, people do turn quite selfless mm-hmm. and they're pretty understanding of the situation that they're in. Um, and we got a lot of support from people that work um, work with us. So, I mean, there's some people saw the bad side of people, but often, more often than not, we're really seeing a pleasingly positive side of people mm-hmm. within our business throughout that the COVID period.
0: Yeah has it has it changed the way that you um, communicate as a leader to the people who you know um, are, are directly responsible you know um, for like your you know your sort of top line managers and and your area managers and, and that kind of stuff? Has it changed the way you actually communicate now that you've had a period of time where you haven't been able to see them face-to-face?
1: Um, not really. Apart from like everyone, mm. like a lot more Zoom meetings going on yes. than, than would normally. So our weekly management meeting with all the restaurant managers is via – monthly we, we get together, but weekly it's via Zoom. Yes, where well, that used to be an in-person meeting, and that just makes sense. It saves a whole lot of people, a whole lot of time and travel. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: that's the only. That's the only one we've um, we've changed. Really, is just keeping keeping a few of the meetings online than we um, than we previously had.
0: Yeah, right. Do you, has that been? Was that a big um, struggle for you to sort of think about or try and change at the start? Even though you you were forced to, but you know, Fonders are very people focused led organisation. Like, was, yeah. that, was that hard not to do those in person at the start?
1: Yeah, it is. And it's still, I mean, I just had a meeting this morning where I said, I'm still feeling a bit, because even now we're facing some restrictions. I still feel a little bit disconnected. Like we were, we had a lot of, we had a monthly, um, a monthly review meeting with all of the restaurant leadership teams. We'd come together every month and have a, a coffee together and um, some breakfast and look at the results of all the restaurants mm-hmm. and, do some planning for the month ahead, and that that hasn't happened for seven or eight months, and things like that. I realise how important they are, and I really miss them and miss the connection. Yeah. So yeah, it was it, it. We next year, hopefully, sorry, in twenty twenty one. Now this year, when um, when the hopefully, as the restrictions continue to ease, we will get back to more in person meetings than, than we currently have.
0: Yeah. What about like, as I said at the start of the podcast, like Mexican. Especially in the Australian market, is is now a very saturated kind of um, part of the segmentation of QSR. Um, you know, you think about sort of five key, five to six key players that that sort of make up the category. Yeah. When you when you think about Fonda, do you do you really think about it as a Mexican brand, or do you think about it more as just a fast casual concept? Because you've got yeah. cinema, like you've got so many different. You've got a, a great bar concept,
1: like yeah, yeah, it no, it's. I, yeah, we, we definitely don't think about it as a Mexican brand. We think about it as a, a brand and an experience. And There's things that we we do really well and we need nice. to keep doing really well. But being nice. a Mexican offering comes sort of third or fourth down from other aspects that we try to deliver well, whether that's creative design, great guest service, mm. you know, innovative um, menus and product launches. But we're not, as I've said, we made a conscious decision when we launched the brand to not be overly pegged to Mexico as a country and a culture, or Mexican as a cuisine. Yes, we sell tacos, burritos. In case it is, but um, I mean we had a kangaroo burrito on our on our first menu, and that was really a message about saying we we are Mexican, and we're about quality, authentically, um,
0: you know, sourced
1: uh, ingredients. But we're we're not trying to be like as authentic as some, you know taco barbecue you might you might see on the streets of, of Oaxaca. Um, nice. yeah. So I, we have, you know, rightly or wrongly, we've consciously made a decision not to be overly Mexican and because of that we don't think of ourselves as a Mexican brand. And to go further into your question, the, the, the QSR players and even the fine dining um, concepts in Mexican, we don't really necessarily see that we compete directly with them. Like we compete with every um, – with everyone that sells food and beverage really in the retail mm. strips. But, but I mean, we've been opposite or right next door to some of those QSR players that you've you've mentioned mm. and they've come and gone and it hasn't really, it hasn't affected our our sales when they've um, opened yes. and it hasn't really affected our sales
0: even when they've closed. Mm. Do you think um, the COVID experience is going to change the customer experience and the way that you interact with guests for the long term, like, do you think there's going to be any kind of uh, tech involvement, uh, which is going to be long term? We've seen some stuff come through, obviously, recently, but do you think that's going to be a long term yeah, thing for Fonda?
1: I, I, I do. I, the digital ordering at the moment, I don't think is we're doing it. You order mm-hmm. through your phone at yes. the tables. It makes a lot of sense. I don't think we're doing it well. I think it has got to be we've got to train and equip our staff better to deliver a great experience with digital ordering. And I think the digital ordering apps themselves, all we're seeing right now is the first iteration of digital ordering that's only going to improve. So in five years, I'm really confident that ordering through your phone at a table will be the norm and it'll be far more seamless and reliable and more interactive and enjoyable than it is today. Mm -hmm. So I think that shouldn't replace some sort of interaction with anyone that you, uh, anyone that works at, at Fonda or the Fonda or the guest. Yes. I still think that you need a warm welcome. I still think you need someone there to explain things, um, recommend the menu, ask you how your day's going. Mm-hmm. All that the digital ordering does is takes away that annoying transactional aspect of customer service, which is taking someone's order. Yes. It doesn't replace the hello. It doesn't replace the welcome back. It doesn't replace the... Can I hang your jacket up or would you like mm. to remove, you know? Yeah. So it, people, I can understand that older people that may not be as savvy with phones really don't like digital ordering. Mm. Younger people that are really comfortable with their phones seem to love it. Yes. But, and I actually think it's a really good thing. There's all sorts of things that digital ordering can and will do, like um, remembering your last order is the basic one, but mm. but recommending pairing options or, Asking if you want a drink twenty minutes after you've ordered, asking mm-hmm. if you want dessert fifty minutes after you've ordered. Mm. You might order a margarita and then watch a little thirty-second documentary on um, on the agave uh, farm or the distillery where the tequila was made. Yeah, you know, um, there's all sorts of things that you can do when you bring in the digital aspect to it. But so I do think that that'll change permanently. But I think I think that's that's it at the core of hospitality. I mean. People have been going out for food and drink for thousands of years. I don't think that'll change, but that digital aspect of ordering I think will be the only thing that does change permanently.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about your team for a second because, you know, I've known certain members of your team um, for a long time and then then other brands I've worked in, they've gone to go and work for Fonda and had an amazing time. In fact, Tim, I've actually never known anyone to have a bad employee experience at Fonda how and and that's something in 2021 i really want to talk a lot more to founders about is about employee onboarding and employee culture and how they've been able to maintain it like when you look at the last you know 12 13 years of your brand and employees being critical to that success like how have you made sure or what steps have you put in place to make sure they have a good time working um
1: Well, I think the honest answer is that we haven't um, that whole time. There's always been periods where we've done it better than others. Mm. And certainly in the last three years, we haven't opened a restaurant for three years now Mm. because we felt that we had to pause and consolidate. We felt we were potentially losing some of um, what you're talking about. Mm. Um, I think early on, uh, what makes a great employee experience is just hiring like-minded people and genuinely, to be blunt, Genuinely giving a shit about your people personally yeah. and professionally. Yes. And I've got that, my business partner's got that. But as you grow, that gets more and more difficult. Just giving a shit about your people personally and professionally isn't enough. Yes. What we realized a few years ago is it does it sounds boring and bureaucratic, but you really need to make sure there's systems and processes in place so that that people do consistently have a great employment experience even as you grow. Yeah. Um it sounds boring and it sounds bureaucratic and for a lot of hospitality people and entrepreneurs it is boring so you don't do it until you realise that your culture is starting to wane mm. and you've got to get some people involved in the business to make sure that those those structures are in place mm-hmm. because it, the, the young, wild and creative workplace gets, as you grow, can actually get really frustrating and confusing and actually become quite, quite negative yes so um i mean you've said some very kind things and i I wish that everything you said was spot on and accurate but we've certainly been on a bit of a learning journey over the last few years and made sure that we're putting some of that whether it's training or whether it's just something as simple as making sure there's annual salary reviews which didn't happen Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. something as simple as that making sure they're in the diary and they happen there's a bit of structure yes um that may not you, know, you can get distracted when you're growing and having a great time, but little things like that that are really important need to be in place to maintain that um, that great work culture.
0: Mm. Um, a couple of questions before I let you go, Tim. Um, you obviously have eight sites, as we've said a couple of times. You've got one in Sydney and then seven in Victoria, um, and one of those Victorian sites in the CBD, which is obviously every CBD around the world has been smashed at the moment. Has this yeah. period of time of COVID Made you think differently about property and the property that you're going to choose for the brand moving forward.
1: Uh, I was thinking differently about property six months ago, mm. but uh, a, a very prominent real estate agent said to me about three months ago, people people have short memories and people just stick go back to what their habits were. Even if COVID goes for a year, people will go back to what their habits were, and I noticed that's happened to me personally. Mm. So. Six months ago, I thought CBDs, it might be the end of CBDs and we're all going to work from home forever. Yes. But seeing, I I was up in Sydney in November and that CBD was absolutely humming and we really saw the Melbourne CBD get quite busy in December. Yep. It's dropped off again now in January as we speak. Mm. But I think that there will be an element of people that work from home, um, which was already sort of happening, but I think fundamentally we will go back to, how we were living before, particularly once a vaccine um, is rolled out, mm-hmm. I, I totally get that a lot of people have been really successful and productive in working from home. Yes. But I still think there's a reason that we go to work and that social interaction will um, uh, will will keep the cities, get the CBDs back up and running. But you know that whole "do I work from home one or two days a week" thing will probably stick around, which will might inject a higher level of sales into the, you know, in a suburban and suburban retail strips, which we've seen over the last six months and might take away from the CBDs a little bit initially. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's that pullback in working population in the CBDs in the, in the short medium term is probably netted off by unfortunately some hospitality businesses that have actually closed permanently in the CBD. Yes. So, to put that otherwise, there might be a 20% lower working population for the next couple of years, but we'll probably see 20% of the businesses permanently um, close. Mm. So, from a from an operational sales point of view, from those um, hospitality concepts that stay open, I, I don't think there'll be too much of a, of an impact, particularly once the vaccine's fully rolled out.
0: Yeah. Do you, Do you think with that, you know, you you said, you know, people going back to some normality even if, you know, maybe they work three days a week um, in the office rather than five. Um, do you think, especially for, you know, Flinders Lane in the CPD, you know, one of the best, one of the best restaurants um, in Melbourne for sure, um, do you think that corporates around you are going to use that particular restaurant and restaurants like Fonda in order to actually bring their teams together on the times they actually do, they are working in the office to actually give them a positive experience and make them want to come back into the office it's just something i've been thinking so the last couple of weeks yeah, can we use hospitality as a driver you know that's
1: a great it's a great thought i haven't actually thought about that but i guess one one reason why some people do like going to work is just getting out of the house getting out of their suburb where they're oh. at maybe it's having that great quality coffee mm-hmm. at, at Tom Thumb or whatever their local cafe is or going out for a meal at a restaurant that um so yeah i think I think entertainment and hospitality and getting together—people, people have proven that they can. A lot of professionals can work. If you're just working a computer, you may as well be at home. Yes. One of the key reasons to come to work is that social aspect of it. Mm. So maybe you're right. I haven't I haven't given that too much thought. But um, if we can make sure that we're offering a you know an accessible and social experience for workplaces and we're in and around them, maybe we can be a reason for them to to get their their people back in the office more than they, more than
0: they might. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious. I'm just curious if especially CBD venues are actually going to change, you know, their traditional kind of um, lunch and dinner times, you know, normally a Thursday, Friday night or a Thursday, Friday lunch would be the most busiest in, you know, in venues in the CBD. Like does that now change to a Monday and Tuesday lunch on some weeks? Because that's when people are in the office. In the and office yeah. part of their team, right? That's when they do their meetings yeah. on Monday and Tuesday. I've just Yeah, it's just something coming to my head last week. Maybe time. you're right. You thought. It's a
1: really it's a really good thought.
0: Hmm. My um my last question to you, Tim, is what are you, what are you looking forward to the most for twenty twenty one, both in a personal uh on a personal basis and also obviously for the brand? Um
1: I think we've got a real gratitude. We're really grateful that we survived COVID. Yes. So I think personally and for our business, we're all proud and relieved and grateful we got through. So we have a heightened sense of appreciation of of our business and the fact we've all kept our jobs. Yeah. And I think that's that's really taken our, I think, the culture and the spirit of our workplace to another level. And we've also noticed that our guests – customers, whilst well, they were deprived of a hospitality experience for four or five months because they were locked down, mm. it, it, it helped them appreciate and realise that they love getting out for a coffee or a cocktail or a burrito or a burger or whatever it might be. Yes. So we're seeing a, a heightened appreciation from our customers just to be out and about having a, a drink or a meal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that just makes it a better place to be, a better place to, to work. Yes. And so we're really trying to capitalise on that Heightened um, spirit and culture and buzz that we're seeing in our restaurants mm-hmm. uh, moving forward, um, and obviously capitalising and making sure we implement some of the changes like the digital ordering, which which have the ability to really help the, the customer experience and run our business. Also, I mean, there's a lot of hospitality businesses that unfortunately haven't survived mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. and I genuinely feel for those people that have gone through that. But it also it also presents opportunities for those. Businesses and brands that have survived. So there's a lot of opportunities for new sites and properties that are now available. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for great people to, to join Fonda and wherever you might work um, because they've lost their jobs, unfortunately. Mm. So um, whilst I feel for those that have that have gone under and haven't survived, it is a it is really about capitalising on some of those opportunities that have presented themselves as a result of COVID.
0: Yeah. And thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast. I really uh, I really appreciate your time and your insights into this um, fantastic Australian brand. Um, what's the best way that people can find out about the brand and if they, you know, want a job with Fonda and after hearing this conversation or they want to just learn more about Fonda, what's the best way they can contact you? Uh,
1: yeah, well, we've, our website fondamexican.com.au uh, has mm-hmm. um, our career opportunities and everything else about our, our offering Um my personal email is Tim at fondamexican.com.au if anyone wants to get in touch about anything. Yep. But thank you very much for having me, Sean. It's been it's been really enjoyable.
0: My pleasure. And always linked up in the show notes. So thanks so much, Tim. Appreciate it. No worries. Thank you, Sean. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so much for listening to this episode of principal hospitality the podcast i hope you really got something out of it as i said at the start of the podcast if you can like comment and share this with people either inside the industry or people outside the industry which you think are going to find it valuable then it would mean the world to us suppose so please do that also wanted to make sure that i'm actually introducing my co-founder sash fernando from principal design one of the most amazing design studios in melbourne if not the country they're award-winning they are dealing in strategy branding digital design and graphic design so make sure you just check them out at principal design.com.au and if you don't know me and what i do i come from over 20 years in the hospital industry and i've got my brand called open pantry consulting so all you need to do is go to open and you'll be able to find out everything that i involve myself with in this fantastic industry I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It's going to be an exciting 2021 for us. We're looking forward to sharing it with you. Until next time, please stay safe. Look after each other.